Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Art of Living series with Smithsonian Associates. Our guest today is author Fiona Sampson. Fiona Sampson will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates August 17th. More details will be available at our website. The title of Fiona Sampson's presentation at Smithsonian Associates is Elizabeth Barrett Browning, A Reinvented Life. Fiona Ruth Sampson, who is a member of the British Empire and is a British poet and writer, has authored 28 books of poetry and nonfiction, including the acclaimed In Search of Mary Shelley. Fiona Sampson's new book titled Two-Way Mirror, The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, is about Britain's most famous female poet. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. With these words, Elizabeth Barrett Browning has come down to us as a romantic heroine, a recluse controlled by a domineering father and an often overshadowed by her husband, Robert Browning. But she defied cultural constraints, a modern figure whose life is a study in self-invention. Born in 1806 when women were denied property, a university education, or the vote, Elizabeth Barrett Browning seized control of her private income, overcame long-term illness, eloped to revolutionary Italy with Robert Browning, and achieved lasting literary fame. A feminist icon, political activist, and international literary superstar, Elizabeth Barrett Browning inspired writers from Emily Dickinson to George Eliot, Oscar Wilde, and Virginia Woolf. How Not to Belong Sun beats down on a shoulder of parkland. Parched grass crackles underfoot. Blowflies and mosquitoes hover among odours of meadowsweet and wild hop. The steep hillside is covered with drying hay that catches the ankles, but at the crest you feel on top of the world. Turn north and almost at your feet is a steep cut running east towards the Morvern Hills. Turn south and a dramatic natural amphitheatre commands the Hereford Plain. Two strikingly different worlds fit together here along a single geological seam. In one direction, stylish villas, a sign of Malvern's emerging fashionability, dot the wooded slopes. In the other, a rural hinterland reaches south and west to the border of Wales. What are the very first things we remember? Bursts of light and colour, perhaps, with the luminous quality of glass. Moments that remain as images, if not complete stories. For a four-year-old called Barr, this is her first summer in the dazzlingly fertile Herefordshire countryside. Her previous homes in County Durham and then near London can already be little more than trace impressions. Here, everything is hyper-real. Footpaths disappear into thickets. Nettles taller than a man spill across fields. Even the hot, stormy weather is exceptional. That, of course, is our guest today, author Fiona Sampson, reading from her new book, Two-Way Mirror, The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. We'll be discussing Elizabeth Barrett Browning's extraordinary life, her prolific writing, and her role as feminist icon. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Art of Living series, Smithsonian Associate Fiona Sampson. 
Fiona Sampson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. I think this is just going to be a wonderful subject for our audience. And I wonder if you'd tell us just briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and in particular, how you'll be using Zoom. We're all on Zoom these days. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you'll be using it to engage our audience. Well, I'm going to be talking about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Britain's most famous woman poet. Um, and I'm going to be talking on Zoom, which is wonderful because it means that the Smithsonian were able to invite me. You didn't have to fly me over across the Atlantic. And in fact, I will be talking from Herefordshire because coincidentally, and it is pure coincidence, I live very near the childhood home and young adult home of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I will be showing um, some slides. I suppose you can still call them slides, can't you, on Zoom? Um, and and talking, talking and giving um, a reading. Um, it's a sort of informal lecture. I hope there will be a chance for questions at the end because I think that goes well even on Zoom. I really love that kind of discussion. People draw out aspects of Elizabeth Browning that I might not have thought about or that I might have thought about, but there wasn't time to cover in, you know, uh, just one presentation. So it's, it's a really nice way to then make her more, you know, human. Thank you for that. Well, when we think about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I think we can't help but remember the famous quotation, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I, I just think those words are still wonderful and they're passionate and emotional. Was that what Elizabeth Barrett Browning was like? What, what was she like a little bit? Well, it's such a good question, isn't it, Paul? Because I think those those lines are interesting because they are one of the few poems that come directly out of her private life, not out of her beliefs or her public life or her poetics or her education. But she wrote the series of 44 sonnets, which were published as sonnets from the Portuguese during the year of her courtship by Robert Browning. And she kept them secret the courtship was secret, and she kept the sonnets secret too. She kept them secret even from Robert Browning, obviously a fellow poet, because she was slightly embarrassed by the fact that they were confessions of her true feelings. And I think that you can hear that in the, there's something very, um, not matter of fact, but very human, isn't there, in saying, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then, of course, she does. She does list the ways that she loves him. There's something very modest and unrhetorical about it. And, you know, it's a poem that has been <laughs> voted Britain's official favourite poem. And, and I you see why, because there's something, because it's so modest and intimate in the way it speaks, it sort of speaks to all of us as, you know, modest individuals in our own private lives. And then, of course, for Elizabeth Barrett Browning, because she was a 19th century lady. She was very much a Victorian, including in her, you know, her morality. You know, it was slightly almost indecent to express emotion, romantic love, um, even though she was married to Robert Browning. So she and he pretended that these poems were not true expressions of love, but they were a literary construct, that they were translations from the Portuguese. And so she kind of put a bracket of embarrassment or kind of protective bracket around them, which, of course, has actually allowed her to 
to speak more directly to us in a sense because she's put that formal structure around them and then her intimate voice says to us how do I love thee how do I love him let me count the ways well Fiona congratulations on your new book it's it's getting rave reviews the title of which is two-way mirror I've got a copy here in my hands right now and it's the first biography I, I thought this was really interesting it's the first biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning in 30 years and so what what sparked your interest and at this point, why now? And and do does Elizabeth Barrett Browning deserve more credit for her influence on poetry? Was that kind of the take that that you decided on, or what was really driving this? Yes, absolutely. It's 160 years this year since she died, and you know when I was in school, um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was still in the anthologies. She was probably the only woman in the anthologies, and for me. Of course, because I'm a woman, I was a girl. That's incredibly important. She was an incredibly important role model. The fact that her poems were, the poems that were anthologized tended to be small and short and accessible helped. Um, But then she kind of disappeared into this fictional version of the Barretts of Wimpole Street. And she disappeared into uh, kind of being Robert Browning's wife. And having been an invalid who was dismissed as by the culture, though not at, her, at the time, as a neurotic, she became this kind of rather pathetic, uninteresting, marginalised figure. And I knew I wanted to write about her because, as exactly as you say, I wanted to bring back um, her central importance in changing the course of poetry in English in the 19th century. And also the huge social and political role she played because she was a very, she was a poet who took her public role very seriously and she advocated for very important causes. In short, she was actually a very dynamic, strong-willed, brave, emotionally strong, intelligent woman, very far from a kind of, you know, simpering invalid And I was shocked when I discovered that I knew there hadn't been a biography recently. But I was shocked when I discovered that it was more than 30 years. It was 1980s, the last full length solo biography of Lewis Barrett Browning by Margaret Forster. It's a lovely biography, very, very emotionally intelligent. But it sort of it changes halfway through because there's only up to a certain point where Barrett Browning's Um, chiefly her correspondence, also a diary that was discovered, but chiefly her correspondence had been collected and archived. Um, The wonderful work that's been done by Philip Kelly at at Baylor University with the Browning correspondence, which is now all digitalized. It's just a wonderful resource. I mean, it should be making us all flock to the Brownings. I mean, none of that was there. And so Elizabeth Browning, really from the moment in her life before she even became a an established serious poet was was inaudible to us. We didn't have we didn't have that information. We didn't have those primary texts which allowed us to find out what she was saying to the people in her life and what the people in her life were saying to her. So there's just like a complete absence, really, of um, a joined up story about who she was and particularly who she was in terms of her achievement, in terms of who she actually became. And so I kind of was was shocked and really wanted to to put the record straight in a way. I mean, I three years ago, I, I wrote a, a biography of Mary Shelley called, you know, In Search of Mary Shelley. And, you know, that I was very lucky that that, you know, you know, 
that was you know really generously received and yes felt, widely regarded uh, mm-hmm. thank you yes and mm. i felt i felt very passionate about mary shelley i felt that she although i would never have had the hubris to write a biography about mary shelley to uh, to pitch that the publishers came to me because i'd done some work on percy bish shelley and i was delighted they did because i wanted to it was a psychological biography and i wanted to sort of strengthen the this our sense of her as someone who was incredibly inventive a really great thinker a pioneer um and not just in her sh- husband's shadow and of course elizabeth bat browning who was born only nine years later but as mary shelley is a is absolutely the paradigm of a romantic in her life and her work so elizabeth is absolutely the paradigm of a victorian in both her life and her work I wanted to do the same for Elizabeth. I wanted to find the way in which we could get back to Elizabeth Barrett Browning as a really great writer, a canonical writer. Yeah, interesting that you bring up Mary Shelley. Uh, of course, the book was so highly regarded. But two women who were known really in relation to their husbands by their last names. Yes. Shelley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're so right. Well, I mean, I, I often think that the thing a woman writer should not do is marry because <laughs> you know, not marry a writer because <laughs> apart from anything else, it's still the case. I'm writing a book now about the romantics and the legacy of romantic thought about the countryside. And I can never just write Shelley when I mean Mary. I can't write Shelley when I mean Percy Bish either, but I mean, I can't, I can't give her that honorific of just the surname. And it's the same, obviously, with Elizabeth. I have to write about her as Elizabeth through the book because I can't keep writing Barrett Browning because, of course, she's not Barrett Browning for the first 40 years of her life until she marries Browning. She's Elizabeth Barrett. Um, And, you know, and also because Browning is um, Robert Browning as well. They share that. It's almost as if, you know, by getting married, they disappear. You know, their own name passes, as the theorists would say, under erasure. You know, it kind of falls under the shadow of the husband's name. And I have been really shocked by some of the critical writing about Robert and Elizabeth Browning that I've I've read while working on this book. I mean, you know, really dismissive of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning was not a minor writer. She was not a minor lady poetess. And I said she transformed the course of writing in English. I mean, among her admirers were people like Emily Dickinson um, and, oh, Oscar Wilde, John Ruskin, Thomas Carlyle, Virginia Woolf, Roger Kipling. And she, what she did for poetry was she and Tennyson shifted poetry away from... I love romantic poetry, but that kind of abstraction that poetry is a cutting edge of quite sophisticated ideas, though made beautiful, into poetry uh, directed speaking for the new mass audience of readership, which we know about. We know that for Charles Dickens, you know, people would mob the newsstands when the next installment of, you know, Christmas Carol or whatever was coming out, Old Curiosity Shop. Um But we forget that poets had a mass readership in the 19th century too. And that when Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, sold, donated a poem uh, against uh, slavery to an abolitionist magazine in um, the States, she was was making a a big public gesture, sort of equivalent to the gesture today by um, a rock star or a film star. But 
in her case, because she was a writer, there was content to that gesture too, so that the poem actually is very, is makes a very passionate case. Or she wrote two whole books about, in support of the cause of Italian independence from the Habsburg Empire, Italian democracy and republicanism. She wrote against child labour. And she believed in an ethical role for poetry. So she was writing to the people back at home. She was writing for hearth and home. She was writing more narrative poetry, poetry which had more intimate everyday language, poetry which is a little bit more sentimental, a little more feelingful. And then the other thing that she did as a writer that's immensely significant is that she took the newly significant form of the Bildungsroman, the 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 story of how someone becomes themselves, you know, their emotional and personal development. Um, and she wrote the first one by and about a woman, Aurora Lee. It's a verse novel in ten books, and it's not only the first woman's Bildungsroman; it's the first woman's Kunstlerroman. So the first story of how a woman becomes an artist, a poet in this case, enormously significant. Let me just shift gears and, and talk about what I thought to be another interesting parallel. You know, we've just experienced this worldwide pandemic and this lockdown and this isolation. Bear Browning, due to her own health issues, faced some of this very, very elements, and, and she, she railed against this. She described it, as you say, as a prison. So I wonder what it was that you learned from Barrett Browning's experience about living in a lockdown life. Did it Did it help you during your writing? Did it help you during the pandemic it's a complex subject to to write about and in in many ways she almost was this paradigm of of a, of a lockdown life absolutely she was that's such a good question yes i mean i in some ways i found it very hard i mean it's very hard when what you are afraid of yourself and what's you know <laughs> on the news all the time and the whole world is convulsed by is you know, a fatal respiratory illness. It's very hard to write about someone who's living with a life-threatening and ultimately fatal respiratory illness. You know, a bit of you doesn't want to enter imaginatively into it as far as you would if you felt that that was far away and long ago. But on the other hand, she was exemplary. I mean, she, you know, it wasn't only that she was confined to her room, sometimes her bed, for months and even years at a time, isolated, living a kind of virtual life of virtual contact through letters and through publication beyond her room, but not able to go out and meet those people. She was doing all of that while also actually being ill, you know, living with the disability of, you know, chronic respiratory illness. I mean, in a time when we have to remember that you know, in a time before steroids and antibiotics, you know, simply to have to be an asthmatic was to live with risk of the de- risk of death all the time, and particularly, you know, in in cold winters. So she, I won't, you know, she obviously didn't accept. She wasn't happy about the conditions of her life. You know, unlike the fantasy where she somehow chose it neurotically, she wasn't agoraphobic or anything. But she kind of transformed it. She turned it around by using the time of being confined to write, to study, to read, to develop her craft. And she she fought, really. She fought, as it were, for for breath, really. She fought for the chance to 
I wouldn't say speak to the world because that sounds grandiose and I don't think she was grandiose, but to speak, um, to be heard. And she wasn't discouraged. You know, she kept on doing it. She didn't sink into a kind of a fit of the vapours and become someone we've never heard of. On the contrary, she became a better and better poet and, you know, very much emerged into the light. I mean, partly simply by going to, you know, moving to Italy where the climate was so much better that her health was really, you know, she really recovered a lot of her health for a while. Um, so, yes, I mean, she's a, she was exemplary. Her courage in the face of kind of daily threat of death was exemplary. And I did find that really mm-hmm. inspiring. We're with Fiona Sampson. Fiona Sampson is author of the new book, Two-Way Mirror. It is the life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Fiona Sampson will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here Tuesday, August 17th. Then the title of the presentation is Elizabeth Barrett Browning, A Reinvented Life. Fiona Sampson is with us today. Let's talk a little bit about the confinement and her prolific publishing activity. She wrote her her first book, or her first book was published at 14. By my math, she must have written it at 13, I I would imagine, right in that range there. (laughs) Yet she was prolific, especially during this confinement period. And was it then that she became radicalized, too, as you you suggested? I think that... She became gradually radicalized. I think she, you have to remember that um, one of the things that's complex about Elizabeth Bat Browning is that her father was a slaver and her grandfather on the other side was too. And when she was a child, as children do accept their families, she accepted it. When she grew up, she was, you know, disgusted and full of guilt and did what she could do, which as a public figure was to write against it. Um, she also believed herself to be a direct descendant of enslaved people, which was actually quite a realistic belief, given you know the amount of sexual violence that accompanies slavery, and uh, given that she had first cousins who were who had mothers who had been enslaved, so. You know, it wasn't a sort of way out self-pitying belief at all. It was a it's quite a realistic belief. Um, So I think that she gradually and then, you know, with more and more speed, once she got into her sort of 20s and 30s, began to feel kind of horror at all sorts of things and you know imperial violence, the Sikh war, for example, um, as I've said before, child labor. And at the same time, she was really developing as a poet. I mean, her first book that got really serious notice was The Seraphim and Other Poems, which was published in 1838. So she is uh, 32 then. So by the standards of certainly the romantic poets, the male romantic poets, she was a late developer. But of course, she was a late developer because she hadn't had an education. She was a girl, so she couldn't go to school. She'd borrowed her brother's tutors and she'd read her way around her father's library and she'd kind of made mentors out of family friends who had any kind of educational excellence wherever she could. So it was very piecemeal and, and again, that sort of sense of making the very best of circumstance, which is quite inspiring. And then the book that really made a difference was her first book that she called Poems. Unfortunately, as was the fashion of her day, she kept publishing collections of poems called Poems. So 
poems 1844 and that's the book that Robert Browning read and admired enormously and and, and caused him to to write to her and then eventually to visit her and it was the start of you know their falling for each other um and it was on the strength of that book poems 1844 that she was the first woman to be nominated for poet laureate in britain poet laureateship in britain you know is for life it's not only for one year so it's really kind of determining who is the poet laureate for any period actually it's now for 10 years at a time but that's just in the last 20 years hitherto it was always for life in fact it was tennyson who got it because of course there wouldn't be another woman wouldn't be a woman laureate for 159 more years after that but the fact that she was even nominated at a time when uh, it was still rare frankly as a woman to publish under your own name was extraordinary um so then poems 1850 had was the first time that she published sonnets from the Portuguese that was included in that book. Um, Aurora Lee appeared when she was 18, in 1856, when she's 50. Casa Guidi Windows, that's the first political book in 1851. So really, actually, the, the books that made her reputation, apart from poems 1844, all once she gets to Italy and she's with Robert Browning and she's away from the shadow of kind of having to conform to her family's kind of polite society and her father's difficult um, expectations and, you know, quite, well, strict domestic rule, one could say. Um, she has this kind of flourishing, really, of 15 years when she gets to Italy, when she publishes... Well, how many books are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, six books. Well, one of them is posthumous, but you know that's that's pretty good going when when you see how how substantial the books are, and of course you remember how ill she was. So, so yeah. So I I, th I think it's more that it was an incredibly gradual process, and that's actually quite a hard story for a biographer to tell. You know, one wants there to be an aha. One wants there to be a like the Villa Diodati for Frankenstein, the kind of oh, this is the moment at which the challenge was thrown down to write X. And it wasn't like that. It was about sustained effort and, you know, enduring willpower and consistency, keeping on, as it were, turning up to write the poems, I think, that that is Elizabeth Bat Browning's story. I learned so much. I, I, the, the book is excellent. Two-Way Mirror is the title of the book. It's The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning by Fiona Sampson. Fiona Sampson, I, I really just have one final question for you because I, I, I did learn a great deal. I just do want to recommend this so highly to our audience along with your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian. This brave, intelligent woman and all of this came about through your time and extensive research that that you put together this just this stunning biography very impressive what did you learn that surprised you most about elizabeth barrett Browning? Mm. thank you paul i think the thing that most surprised me about her was well her her physical and emotional strength how how wide-ranging her influence was at the time on other writers. And I think, you know, I didn't know that she believed herself to be of mixed heritage and felt that she was writing against the whole grain of that too, that she, 
you know, I, I wished that I had been able to find evidence that she was because I think she's such an incredible role model. And to be able to be a role model is one of the first black European poets, you know, alongside Pushkin or Phyllis Wheatley, who's much less well known, would have been amazing. I couldn't find any evidence. I don't rule it out, but I can't rule it in. Um, but I felt that that was very, you know, as they say, written in the body. Her her whole life experience and the choices she made in terms of that experience is real it's it's really living history. She really was paradigmatic of her time, of the opportunities and the limits of that mid-19th century, you know, culture and era. And she really transformed it. Fascinating. Truly fascinating. A, a fascinating person. Um, just this uh, sustained perseverance, as you describe, her life experiences. Um timing of the book is just is just perfect you're just uh, spot on in releasing this book at the time that you that you have Fiona Sampson's been our guest today a great book entitled Two-Way Mirror Fiona Sampson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up here August 17th I just encourage everybody to check out Fiona Sampson's new book as well as her other books and uh, check out her presentation at Smithsonian Fiona Sampson thank you so much for your time today we appreciate your generous reading as well as all of the insights and expertise on elizabeth barrett browning thank you so much paul it's a real pleasure to talk to you my thanks to our guest today fiona sampson for her generous time and expertise fiona sampson will be presenting at the smithsonian associates august 17th more details will be available on our website the title of fiona sampson's presentation at smithsonian associates is elizabeth barrett browning a reinvented life My thanks, of course, to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, everyone. Wear your masks when needed. Encourage those who haven't to get vaccinated. And let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates Series. Thanks, everybody.